grandparents called me last night, and they said, we're going to be at worship with you in the morning. I got all excited, and they said, online. So well, that's fun for you. But it was a good reminder that there are so many who are with us here this morning, virtually and online, and to them I say, welcome. Uh, you remain a part of us even as you are, are not here. It is a blessing to be able to be with, with many, many more that are even here. And I know our teens are, are at their retreat this weekend, and many are doing other things, but uh, I also just want to thank all of you who are here this morning. Uh, we've got exciting times here at Northwest. Last week, we raised in cash and pledges over $103,000 for mission work this year. So <laughs> praise to God for that. Uh, it's so good to be part of a church that gets excited about missions. Um, next week, we're going to get excited, as we do every Sunday, about the resurrection. Uh, we're going to do some, some different things next week to kind of give special attention to Jesus and the fact that he did not stay in the tomb, that he got out, and it changed everything. Uh, so just so you know, some of the things we're doing the same next week, our youth and youth parents classes are kind of doing a special series. They're going to still do that next week, so they'll go to their classes. Uh, but for the kids and parents and adults, all the others of us that aren't teens or teen parents, uh, we're going to have a shared breakfast over in the fellowship area. Uh, and then we're also going to have set up in the gym a whole bunch of prayer centers that you can go around. And for some of our older adults, uh, if some of our youth group parents are in the youth class and you see a kid running around, it's a great opportunity for you to learn that kid's name and go pray with them at some different activities and for us to kind of family around that event. Uh, so look for opportunities to do that. Uh, it is something that will be a blessing to people of all ages, so be sure to plan on being here for that 9 o'clock hour. We won't have the other classes so that we can all be over there together. Uh, and then we're going to come over here uh, for our worship time, and we're going to change the rhythms of our worship service. We've done this several times before, and uh, it always is a blessing to me, and, and others have been blessed by it as well. We're going to do it again, where we kind of change up the order of songs and scripture readings um, and instead of a lesson, what you're going to hear next week is the testimonies of, of biblical characters, people from history who saw the man Jesus crucified and resurrected. And we're going to think about as we sing about and read about and listen to them share uh, what they saw when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, how it changed everything for those people, and think about how it changes everything for us today. And so if you're able to be here uh, or are thinking about coming, I hope that you'll be here next week. I think it'll be a great blessing uh, to you. We'll all be in here next week. We won't do children's worship or anything else, so we'll just all be here, and we'll have ways for everyone to kind of participate and be involved in that. Uh, but today we're going to talk about uh, three people who were extremely close in proximity to the events that happened uh, about 1980 years ago. Events that happened uh, as Jesus was about 35 years old. Events that happened on a hill called Calvary or Golgotha. It's known by many names. They were there in the hours when Jesus was crucified. They were there for his trial. They were there as witnesses to what happened on that hill far away. And we're not going to talk today about Pilate or the apostles or Mary and the other women who followed Jesus. And we're not today going to talk about Peter or John who had special roles in those days and special roles after those days. Or Herod, the, uh, 
the king, the ruler over the Jews, or the Roman or Jewish guards who had different roles in the arrest of Jesus and in the persecution of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. What we're going to talk about today is three people who often don't come up as much in the stories. We're going to talk about the three criminals. The three criminals who were supposed to be on crosses that day to be crucified at Golgotha. The three criminals, and sometimes we talk about one of the criminals, but we're going to talk about all three. Because even before Jesus was arrested on that day after the Passover feast, there were already three men whose names were ready to be put on crosses. Three men whose lives were going to be ended because of the crimes they'd committed and the sentences handed down to them by Rome. We're going to talk about these three criminals who were executed on those, were scheduled to be executed on that Good Friday. We don't know much about the three of them. There's only a few verses. Uh, But I want to kind of draw from some of the things that were going on in that time and the things that are going on in that scene uh, to think about how many of us can probably relate to those three criminals in ways you may not have thought about before. There's much that each of us may have in common with one or more of them. We only know uh, the name of Barabbas, the one whose cross would eventually become Jesus and be in the middle. But church tradition holds that the other two names were Gestus and Dismas. I don't know if that's correct or not, but it's easier than calling them criminal one and criminal two or John Doe one and John Doe number two. We're going to leave those out and we'll just give Gestus and Dismas the names that history has sometimes given them and has given them others too, but we'll use these. Gestus is the criminal uh, who is known as the unrepentant one. He's the criminal who mocks Jesus. Dismas is the one who is so often known as the criminal on the cross, the one who had remarkable faith and whom Jesus made a promise to in the end. And the third one who ended up not being executed that day is Barabbas, the notorious criminal, described as a murderer and insurrectionist who was given a pardon and whose cross instead was carried and used by a man named Jesus. But before we get to the events of that day, we need a little bit of background. We need a little bit of background about some of the kind of cultural dynamics at play in the events of this this day. One of the things you need to know is about a group called Zealots. Uh, We use the word zealot today to describe someone who has incredible religious religious fervor, uh, someone who is zealous for their faith, and almost uh, out of bounds they're so passionate about their faith. But the name comes from this group of Jews living in Jerusalem uh, in the years around Jesus' ministry. Uh, Starting in about six years A.D., a man named Judas the Galilean uh, started this movement and it, was out, it came out of the Pharisees. We tend to know the Sanhedrin is the group of people that rules the temple and over Jerusalem kind of in a formal way. There's the Sadducees. A lot of Sadducees were part of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were kind of a philosoph- philosophical group. They tended to be wealthier. They also tended to deny the resurrection. And then there were the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees were members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and they were part of this group. And the Pharisees... Uh, believed in a strict observance of the law. 
And they get criticized for that so often in Scripture, but they had good intentions. At least some of them did. Their desire and their belief was that if all of Israel could completely follow all the commands that God had given them in the Torah for one day, that Messiah would come. And that when Messiah came, he would set everything right, and he would fix everything that was broken, and he would make, make right all the wrongs that were going on in the world, which for most of them included getting rid of Rome and putting the Messiah back on King David's throne for eternity, and they longed for that. So a lot of their desire for righteousness came out of a commitment and a desire for Messiah to come back, for Messiah to arrive, the anointed one. And so they prayed for that and they worked for that. But within the Pharisees, there came up another group. And it's a group that got tired of waiting for everyone to get on board with the religious rules of the day. It was a group that, that was Pharisees in their understanding of Scripture, but they had this extra little belief. And that belief was, hey, we're following the rules as best we can here, and Messiah is not coming. Maybe he's waiting for us to be faithful enough to start the revolution. And if we just get the ball rolling, that's how Messiah will know that we really mean what we are asking for. And so if we just start occasionally calling, causing little riots and little rebellions, we can, can rise up and Messiah will then say, I can tell that you're now ready to get rid of Rome. I can tell that you are now ready to begin being the kingdom that you've been praying I would usher in. And Messiah would show up because of their, their acts of faithful rebellion against Rome. And so the zealots are this group. The zealots become this group uh, that is committed to violence for the sake of obedience to Messiah so that he'll show up and lead them out of their bondage to Rome. And then within the zealots, there comes this other little smaller subgroup uh, of what came to be known as Sakari. The Sakari were a group, they were given that name because of their weapon of choice. It was a small, shorter, shorter than a sword blade that had a curve to it. And so it almost looked like a scythe or a sickle. And so the, the Roman word, uh, which I can't even pretend to pronounce the Latin of, is similar to the name that they received, the Sicarii. And so the Sicarii are these uh, Jewish assassins who love to slip into crowds, find their Roman targets, slit their throats, and run away. And as soon as they're in the crowd, it's impossible to know who did it or where they went. And so they were using this radical form of violence, of, uh, of assassination, to try and bring about the overthrow of Rome and the arrival of the kingdom of God and his people Israel and the arrival of the Messiah. So hold on to that for a minute in your little background bag. We'll get back to that a little bit later uh, and why that ties into these three criminals potentially. The other thing that you need to know in the background of this is about Pilate and this Paschal pardon, this Easter pardon, this Passover pardon that he has made a part of his practice. Uh, Pilate had been appointed as governor by the Romans. Um, the Jews who were under Pilate did not vote for him. They did not choose him. They did not want him. They wanted freedom. They wanted their own independence. They wanted Israel to be a self-governing people under God, under Yahweh, the way that God had called them to be. 
and they longed for that. And the biggest obstacle in the way of that was Rome. And Rome's puppet in this regime ruling over them was Pilate when you're in Judea. Now there's also Herod. Herod is kind of the, the part Israelite, part not uh, king of the Jews, but he's also been put there by Rome. And so he's not really of them, but he is over them. And he's also a puppet of the Roman government. And there is the high priest, but the high priest has been put in place by, can you guess who? Rome. And Rome has picked the high priest that's going to be the most loyal to them and the most faithful to them and worry about Rome's interest and their own interests rather than the interest of God and his people. And so you have all of these groups that people are frustrated with. And Pilate served as the governor of Judea for 10 years, and not a ton is known about his rule, but we know that he did crucify a man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And we don't just know it from the four historical records and all the letters that came after it from the New Testament. We know it from uh, Josephus and from other historians of the time who wrote uh, about how one of the things Pilate did during his rule was to crucify a man of, named Jesus from Nazareth. But Pilate was also known to be a cruel leader. Pilate would often use violence to, to, to squelch uh, the people. He would do anything. His job was to make sure that Judea was peaceful, peaceful and profitable make sure that there's no rebellions, and they pay their taxes. That's really his two jobs. And if there's not peace, he's going to get fired. And if there is not taxable income, he's going to get fired. If he does anything else, as long as those first two things are done, Rome doesn't really care. Ultimately, Pilate's reign ends when he has such a violent reaction to a Sumerian uprising that he goes in and wipes out this group of people, and Rome says, okay, okay, that's too violent even for us. And they call him back home, uh, and he retires after that. But this is who Pilate is, and this is how Pilate ruled over Jerusalem in the area that was around that. But in addition to violence, one of the things he would do uh, to extend his popularity and his influence among the Judean people is that once a year on their biggest religious festival, he would have a, a big spectacle a big event where he would call the crowds together. And in Jerusalem's major feast, Passover greatest among them, the city would swell to multiple times over its normal size with, with those who are traveling, pilgrims, to see uh, what the temple is doing and to be part of worshiping God in that time, in that place, remembering God's deliverance from Pharaoh. And, and so when they would come to that place, if you are celebrating that God delivered you from Pharaoh, it's really easy to go from that to praying that God will overthrow Caesar. And so one of the things Pilate would do in that weekend where he knew that the city and the crowds were powerful and influential and huge is he would have a little bit of a spectacle each year to distract them. He would give them something that would encourage them. He would say, listen, instead of celebrating your freedom from Pharaoh, from trying to get freedom from me, let's set free one of the Jewish prisoners who is in a Roman prisoner. I'll let you choose. You just come to the big courts and I'll let you chant the name of the person you want the most. And I, like your God, will deliver one of them to you. And we can all feel really good about me being in charge and you not having a big riot while we're here celebrating your deliverance. And this was very successful for Pilate. 
But it's important to know that what Pilate is doing here in this pardon system is not part of Roman justice system. This is not part of the good uh, form of pardoning that we often are able to enjoy in this country. In our country, when a pardon takes place and a governor or a president pardons someone, it is often because they have shown themselves to be exemplary as, as criminals in a way that shows that they deserve another chance. And so the one who is in charge can give them that other chance even when the law might not otherwise allow it. It's a form of giving those who are in power an ability to bring mercy to a system that is so rooted in justice that it sometimes leaves out mercy. And in that way, a pardon is a good thing. Pardons are sometimes given when the system fails and someone who is, is innocent is marked as guilty, but the system doesn't have a way to fix that. And so you need a pardon to fix what the system broke, uh, even uh, when it was trying to do what was right in its best moments and not in its worst. The pardon comes in and addresses that. In that way, the pardon is a measure of both justice and mercy in our world. And, and there were pardons like that in Rome's world too, but that's not what this was. There's another pardon that takes place in our country that is tied to a holiday that reminds us of our blessing. And that is the uh, presidential pardon of a turkey on Thanksgiving. Are you familiar with this? Uh, this, it goes back to uh, Harry Truman was one of the first presidents to regularly start receiving Thanksgiving and Christmas turkeys. Uh, and you think, man, that must have been because he was really popular with the turkey growers. It wasn't. He had put in wartime provisions to reduce the eating of meat to make the economy work better for soldiers and have meat to send overseas. And turkey producers didn't like it. So they sent him turkeys and tried to get as many pictures as they could of him eating turkeys to promote meat uh, to American people. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, but out of that came the tradition of sending pr presidents turkeys on Thanksgiving. Uh, the first one to actually, most of, some of them would eat the turkeys, which is fine. Uh, many of them would spare the turkeys and send them to a local petting zoo or a zoo in the nearby area. Um, the first one to pardon, officially use the word pardon with the turkey, uh, was Ronald Reagan. Uh, and you think, man, what a great guy. But if you actually look into it, it was during the Iran-Contra controversy where he was getting all kinds of questions about whether or not he would pardon Oliver Stone. And his answer was, I don't know about him, but I will pardon this turkey. And so there's the actual birth of the pardoning of turkeys in our country. Isn't that great? <laughs> I like that it's capitalism and politics that give birth to this wonderful tradition. George H.W. Bush is the first president that actually writes out a, a handwritten pardon for the turkey and sends it off to a petting zoo. Uh, most of them, and guys, if you get into look, I'm telling you this because I just couldn't quit reading it. Most of them, there's lists that tell you which of them made it to the next Thanksgiving and which ones didn't. <laughs> None of them get eaten, but turkeys are really bred to kind of make it till about November and not much farther. That's how we raise them. Uh, but, but courage, which was actually uh, pardoned by uh, President Obama, lived for six years. Do you know the key to living six years after you're pardoned if you're a turkey? Retiring to Disneyland. <laughs> no joke. Um, there's something that I can't find anywhere in the research, but I am certain is true. 
if you go through the list of pardoned turkeys, and they all get names, uh, if you go through the list of pardoned turkeys going up to the year 1999, there's one a year. And then starting in 2000, there is suddenly two a year. And the custom changes to where it's not, I'll just pardon this turkey. It's that two turkeys are brought to the president. One is pardoned and becomes the official turkey of the United States. The other one is retired. They still don't eat him and they go off to live together at wherever they retire to, uh, hopefully Disneyland if they win. Um, and you might wonder what happened in November of 2020 that would cause there to suddenly be two turkeys one gets pardoned and one doesn't, but they both live. And I'm certain that it is an episode of West Wing that came out in November 10th, 20, the year 2000, where there's a whole plot about C.J. Craig having to pick between two turkeys, which one lives and which one dies. And the president of the United States does it that way from then until now. Isn't that great? So life imitating art, right? And I only share that with you because it's one of my favorite episodes of The West Wing. So there you go. All of that is to say, when it comes time for Pilate to pardon uh, Jesus or Barabbas, there's no justice system at play here. It's a holiday event where a political leader tries to score a few cheap political points using a spectacle sometimes tied to capitalism, sometimes tied to politics, sometimes tied to entertainment, but all of it just done to improve their image, and it has nothing to do with justice. So on that day, when Jesus and Barabbas and the others are brought forth in front of the crowd, and, and Pilate says, you know that it is our custom that I pardon one Jewish criminal each year, uh, and the others go to the cross, I ask you to please choose this man, Jesus, who, as far as I can tell, has done nothing wrong. He appeals to their sense of justice, and they respond with a sense of spectacle. They respond with the desire uh, that they would set free Barabbas and send Jesus to the cross. But you need to understand that that is not justice, that it's spectacle. It's injustice. It's a farce. It's an event that's done just to trump up and, and to uh, improve fake uh, publicity and favor for Pilate in a time of tenseness in his reign. Here we get back now to our three criminals. The first one that we talk about is Gestus. Gestus, you remember, is the criminal uh, who is uh, mocking Jesus even as he hangs next to him dying on the cross. There will always be and there has always been people who when God seems to be down and out, when Jesus seems to be down and out, when the church is out of influence and popularity and power, who are willing to stand up and mock God, mock Jesus, and mock the bride of Christ, which is the church. There are always crowds and fools willing to mock Jesus when he's down. There are always people, and you can see this in our world today, that as the influence and popularity of the church shrinks, the guilty fools of the world join the crowds in mocking Jesus and his people. That person will always exist until Jesus comes back, and then every knee in heaven and earth shall bow. But in between then and 
uh, now, we are going to continue to see people who label Jesus as a fool who can't save himself, his church, or anyone else around them. And what you need to know is, is you don't have to get mad at them, but just know that the gospel labels them a fool. We can choose who we want to be. We don't get to choose what everyone else does. It'd be nice if we could, I guess. I don't, we don't get to choose who everyone else is or how everyone else responds. You do get to choose how you respond. When you are on a cross, guilty of all the things you've been convicted of, when you are in judgment because of all the things that you've done wrong in your life, you can choose whether you're going to mock Jesus or not. That's a choice you have. Peter's also in the room. You can choose when the people who are mocking Jesus come up to you and say, hey, uh, this guy's been arrested. This guy's going to get crucified. You were with him, weren't you? If you want to, you can be like Peter who says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. You can be like Peter who when a servant girl comes up to him and says, aren't you one of the ones that I saw with this Jesus like yesterday? And he says, listen, I don't know him. You can deny Jesus Christ. You can mock Jesus Christ. But it doesn't change the fact that he's dying on a cross to save you even as you mock him, even as you deny him. But you have that choice. But then you also have Dismas. Dismas is the one that we so often know as the criminal on the cross. And in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 40, here's what he says. He says, one of the criminals, criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we, Dismas says about him and Gestus, we're punished justly. We did the things we're accused of. We are actually getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. You know, what's interesting is that Matthew and Mark both tell us that both criminals mock Jesus. We need Luke, who's the big researcher, to go out and find the extra detail that, that Dismas doesn't stay a mocker, that he sees something. He starts out as one who is mocking, but he sees something while he's hanging there on the cross next to Jesus that makes him go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And there's something about how Jesus is, is dying. And there's something about how Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, and there's something about the way that he's forgiving people, and there's something about the way that he's carrying himself in the midst of the mockery and the punishment and the torture that makes Dismas, after a while of mocking Jesus, say, hey man, this guy's not like us. You and I deserve to be up here, but you mock him when he doesn't? He's not like us. There is something that Jesus is saying and doing and about how his presence is on that cross that makes Dismas say, whoa, you're not like us. In a few minutes, a Roman centurion who's standing at the foot of the cross is going to come to the same confession of faith that surely this man was the son of God. And, and there's something that Dismas sees here. And we don't know exactly what it was, but here's what he said. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me 
in paradise. Now, we've heard this story too many times to be shocked by it, but you have to be shocked by this. Dismas is hanging on a cross next to a man who's hanging on a cross. It's not hard. You can ask anyone in the crowd, what does the future hold for these men? You take a straw poll, 100 out of 100 people in the crowd say they're going to die. Why? Because 100 out of 100 people that get on a Roman cross die on a Roman cross. Dismas looks at that and says, man, there's a 100% chance of me dying today and a 100% chance of him dying today. You know what I think is happening? I don't think this is a crucifixion. I think this is a coronation. There is something about how Jesus is dying on the cross that makes the Roman centurion at his feet and Dismas on his side say, oh my goodness, this guy's about to win everything. The crowd's mocking him. Why? Because they think he's losing everything. They think they're watching a crucifixion. Dismas knows he's watching a coronation. That's unbelievable faith. It defies everything your eyes see. It defies everything your brain tells you, except that he knows it's true. And so he says to Jesus, Today, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, I believe this is a coronation. I believe you're about to become king. I about, believe you're about to come into a kingdom. When you do, can I be in it? And Jesus should look over at him and go, man, are you kidding? We're both dying on crosses. Except that Jesus knows he's right. Jesus knows what Satan doesn't know, Dismas has figured out that Jesus is not about to die, he's about to become resurrected, that Jesus isn't about to lose, he's about to become king of kings and lord of lords. And Dismas is close enough on the cross next to him to see it and figure it out and wants to be a part of it. That's incredible faith. And his reward is that Jesus tells him, today you will get to be the first witness to both the crucifixion and the resurrection. You get a front row seat to all of it. What you thought was going to be your worst day is about to become your best day because you understand that the crucifixion is, in fact, a coronation. This guy goes from hopeless to having nothing but hope because he's watching Jesus die on the cross, innocent of all charges, while he dies on the one next to him, guilty of all charges. Which brings us to Barabbas. I wish we knew so much more about Barabbas. What we do know is that the name Barabbas is Aramaic for son of the father. I don't know if you knew that. Bar is son, Abbas of the father. What it means is that there is this crazy dynamic, this horrible and yet beautiful irony that when Jesus, who is the son of God the father, was offered for the mockery of the Passover pardon. The crowds were actually chanting in their language, which they, which they knew and we don't. What they were chanting was, crucify Jesus, give us the Son of the Father. Indeed. Jesus had to stand there listening to them say, crucify Jesus, give us the Son of the Father, knowing that he was God the Father's true Son, about to be delivered to a Roman cross. 
We don't know for sure. We know that one of Jesus' apostles was a zealot. We know that there were many of those in the area, and certainly on Passover they would have been in Jerusalem. We don't know if Barabbas was a zealot or a Sicari or not, but we can get some idea that some of the words that were given about him give us insight that if he wasn't one of them, he was like-minded in some ways. The Bible tells us that Barabbas was a notorious murderer, an insurrectionist, it certainly suggests his ideas would have been closely aligned with those who were trying to overthrow those who Rome had put in place. Because if you're an insurrectionist in Jerusalem in this day, the only people you can overthrow are the people that Rome put in charge. And if that's what you're trying to do by violence, you're pretty much a zealot or a Sicari. And while he's not given that label in Scripture, what we can, can pretty much assume is that if he's trying to overthrow the government, it's because he wants God's people in charge, not Rome's and Caesar's people. And that if he wants to use violence to do it, that his views or, are or are closely aligned to the zealots. If that's the case, what that tells us about Barabbas is that he desired to use violence to usher in the reign of the Messiah over Israel and the world. That he had earned his cross through violence and murder and an insurrection, trying to get other people to rise up with him so that the Messiah might come and reign over them was his goal. His desire would have been the exaltation of Israel and, and all Jews know that can't happen without the arrival fully of Messiah. So his whole life's work of violence has been aimed at the arrival of the Messiah. And here he gets pardoned by the crowd. And here he gets dismissed. And I don't know, it, the Bible doesn't tell us if Barabbas got pardoned and said, I'm getting out of here before Pilate changes his mind. And if he took off as far and fast as he could go, he may have. But I like to think I like to imagine that Barabbas stuck around like every other person in Jerusalem that day to see what was going to happen to this man, Jesus, who is not worthy of a cross and who died on a cross. And if that's the case, Barabbas is standing there in the crowd watching these people mock Jesus as he dies on the cross that yesterday had Barabbas' name on it. Barabbas, knowing that he was guilty of all the things that he had done in hopes of the Messiah coming, and Messiah means the anointed one, the king of the Jews, and there is Jesus on Barabbas' cross, and there's a sign above his head. And you know what it says? King of the Jews. And whether Barabbas knew it or not, the one that he had killed for and prayed for was now dying on a cross that he deserved and that the Messiah did not deserve. Why was the Messiah doing this? to turn the whole world upside down, to accomplish through his death what Barabbas tried to accomplish through violence, to accomplish in forgiveness what Barabbas tried to accomplish by taking revenge in his own hands and for his own purposes. Jesus is undoing the kind of evil that Barabbas had done in the name of accomplishing all that Barabbas desired to have accomplished. It's just not happening the way he expected. So today, we can learn and study about three criminals, all of them guilty and deserving of death by their own confession. One was willing to die for his sins, mocking Jesus until his last breath. 
The second saw something that made him believe that the crucifixion was a coronation and that it was a kingdom he wanted to be a part of and was allowed to enter into that day. And the third didn't have to die because Jesus took his place and died on his cross. I don't know if Barabbas saw Jesus die on his cross or not, but if you're here today and, and you claim Jesus as your Lord, it's because you know that Jesus died on your cross. And because I know Jesus died on my cross. If you're here today, it's because you saw what Barabbas may have seen and experienced and realized so today, you're offered the choices that the criminals of Golgotha had 1,980 years ago. You can choose to die in your sins, or you can choose to call on the name of the one who never sinned. You can choose the punishment you deserve, or the freedom in life that Jesus deserves. He offers it to you, freely. You can choose whether you will see what happened on that hill that day as a crucifixion or a coronation. And if today is the day that you choose coronation, if today is the day that you choose freedom, if today is the day that you choose Jesus' innocence instead of your guilt, then it's time to join the kingdom of the Son of the Father, the one and only begotten Son of Jesus, of God, who was sent to us to save us from our sins. If you need to do that and respond to the gospel, please come forward as we stand and sing. Oh, palace, no.